I'll be reading from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the garrisons. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. We ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to minister to us this hour, enabling me to clearly communicate your truth to your people, for them to be built up, And to see their Savior even more clearly this day. For any, for all, who do not believe, they may believe about you, but their faith and trust is not in you. Pray that you'll grant them saving life. Regeneration this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, as I asked earlier, uh, who comes to your mind as the most unlikely person to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps it's someone completely enslaved to sin, out of control, self-destructive, given to fits of rage. They hate the name of Jesus for you even to mention him. The question for you is that is this, do, do you believe that Jesus has the power to transform that person? Do you believe he has the power to rewrite their story? And when I ask do you believe, I don't mean do you believe, you know, theoretically. But do do you believe personally? Do you believe actually that he has the power? See, Mark, the author, wants us to know that there is no life that he cannot change. There are no chains of bondage that he cannot break. This account is a vivid example of that. 
Uh, We're looking at a very fast-paced series within Mark's gospel of the kingdom power of Jesus Christ. Recall that in the previous chapter, um, Jesus strategically grouped three parables about the kingdom together that have to do with the nature and character of his kingdom. And followed by um, three miracles, four actually, as the Lord begins to reveal to his disciples uh, just who exactly he is. The miracles include Jesus' lordship over creation, that is over nature. We saw him calm this raging storm last week by the words of his mouth. This morning, we see his power over the demonic realm as he'll deliver this pathetic man in a pathetic state from demonic power. And that'll be followed by demonstrations of the Lord's power over disease and death as he raises a young girl from the dead and heals a woman of a 12-year discharge of, of blood. So slowly but surely... Our Lord is revealing to His disciples His true identity. The veil is raising along the way. So we move this morning from the taming of the sea that we looked at last Lord's Day to the taming of a desperately possessed man. Jesus here displays His power and authority over the forces of evil. Again, by the words of His mouth. He is the Lord of lords. So here he's going to confront, as we shall see, the demonic distortion and destruction of something that had originally been created in the image of God, a human being. Only human beings are created in the image of God. And the demons have come. Satan attempts to distort that, to to ruin that, to destroy that. And since they cannot inflict pain upon God, that is, who they truly hate, Satan and his demonic realm hate God. And since they cannot inflict pain upon God, they go after his picture. Human beings who bear the image of God in an attempt to destroy to destroy the very thing that God declared in the beginning as being very what? Very good. Very good. They've set out to oppose God's purpose in the world, to destroy the testimony of His people. Here to destroy a man created in the image of God, a man who's possessed, a man who's tortured, a man who's given to fits of rage and self-destruction. No joke. Scripture speaks very clearly to the realities of the universe and things that we cannot pick up on on our own, in and of ourselves. So the Lord has to reveal these things to us. For instance, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, look at it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in Heavenly places. That is the unseen demonic realm. Now, with reference to to satanic activities, there are two extremes that we could take, and C.S. Lewis helps us with this when he wrote, quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, end quote. So that is to say, there is a ditch on either side of the road, and Satan really doesn't care which one you fall into. One being, that is to ignore out and out the realities of what what God's word tells us, as regards the unseen realm, and the other is to become obsessed with the possessed, to where you're looking behind every curtain for demonic activity. Don't do that. 
The focus of this passage, friends, is Jesus, not demons. The focus is Jesus and his power, to be more specific. The power of Jesus over the unseen demonic realm. And here we see the power of Jesus to restore a a helpless and hopeless individual as an example of Jesus helping helpless and hopeless individuals. Amen? So this account provides for us a window into the identity of Jesus, the Christ, Son of God. That's who Mark has set out to prove as being who he is, the Son of the living God, the royal anointed one, Jesus of Nazareth. And so it serves as a window in seeing the reality of who he is. It also shows it serves as a window for us to come face to face with the Son of the Most High God. Because if you notice here in this account, there are three different parties who come in contact with Jesus and his power. Three different parties, and within those three different parties, we see three different responses. We see the demons and their response, the demoniac and and his response, and the domestic party. That is, the people of the community, the working people, the common people, and their response to Jesus. So we see the demons, the demoniac, and the domestic residents of Gadara here. Now, this, this account appears in all the synoptic gospels. Synoptic gospels being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which means to see alike. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Together you see many of the same accounts, whereas John is pretty much unique to itself for the most part. But they all cover this. And Matthew's gospel, if you were reading it, you'll say, hey, wait a minute. There were two possessed men in that account. Same place, same day, two possessed men. Well, remember, Mark, his intention is to remain sparse. He's on the move. He's speaking in terms of immediacy. And his focus is on one individual and, and revealing to us that one man's great need and his extraordinary suffering. So he's focusing on one individual One of the two that used to roam around these tombs naked, screaming, shrieking, because they were filled with demons. So notice now, we move from Jesus. He he has just led his disciples from Capernaum into a storm. He's led them into a storm. He's led them through that storm. And now he leads them into hostile territory. Who's, Who's in the lead here? Jesus is in the lead. He's leading his disciples into a storm, through the storm, and now into hostile territory. Remember that, Christian. Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So having passed some 12 to 13 miles from the northwest corner of Galilee to the southwest cor- southeast corner of Galilee, they, they enter into the, to the land or the country of the Gerasenes. Now, in normal conditions back in this day, in a boat like this, it would be a two to three hour trip. We don't know how much the storm delayed their arrival, but nevertheless, here they are. So, whether it's still nighttime or early hours of the morning, we do not know, but they are about to throw anchor down. Now, remember, at this point, they just came through the storm. There are no sounds of crashing waves, no sounds of howling winds. Jesus muzzled the wind. He muzzled the sea. The the, the, the Sea of Galilee at this point is placid. It's quiet, and the disciples are perplexed, scratching their heads, saying to themselves, who is this man that calms the winds and the waves? So imagine in the stillness, all of a sudden, this is very possible, all of a sudden in that stillness, they hear a shriek, a scream from the shore as they're still out in the water and working these waters all the time as these fishermen did. Perhaps, just perhaps, it is quite possible that they have encountered that shriek before. And Jesus looks to the shore, 
And he says, that's where we're going. Now, for a Jewish person, that's, that, that's a big deal to, to enter into this place. This is unclean, for the most part, Gentile territory. Um, not to mention to be among the tombs where you would be deemed what? unclean, here they are. They're going into hostile territory. That's what I mean by hostile territory. And perhaps, as we mentioned last time, this is the very reason that Jesus said we're going to the other side. And perhaps this is the reason that a storm came up to keep Jesus from getting to the other side. Perhaps. What Jew in their right mind would want to go here? Answer? The one true pure Jew. Jesus, the pure one. Nothing unclean makes him unclean. Everything unclean he comes in contact with comes, becomes what? Clean. Notice, this is not a man seeking God. This maniac, this sociopath, he's not seeking after God. But the God-man is seeking after him. This is sovereign grace on display, beloved. Here he is. Now, verses 2 through 5 is a portrait of this man's pitiful, horrifying, absolute miserable condition. And again, as I've said earlier, most of us, we've read this account many times, Remember, this is a real human being. This really happened. This isn't some fictional account. This is a human being in desperate slavery to sin and satanic possession. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So no, no sooner did they arrive to secure the boat, immediately this, this man runs to him. In verse 6, if we read that, it tells us that he had seen Jesus from a distance, and perhaps they were still in the water. We don't know. He saw him from a distance, and he began to run towards Jesus. Once they secure the boat, he runs out, falls down before him. So here's a man with an unclean spirit. In verses 15, 16, and 18, he's referred to as the demon-possessed man. Owned. A demonized man. Now, we've witnessed Jesus cast out demons earlier, have we not, in this account? Jesus is in teaching in a synagogue, and... Uh, demons are hanging out within this possessed man, and he starts screaming out because they recognize that Jesus recognizes them. They were, to re- they were able to remain stealth in that environment. This is a whole other situation. There's no one in all the Bible, no human being in all the Bible that's described like this. This is a terrifying, pitiful condition. Notice verse 3, he lived among the tombs. That is, subterranean caverns carved out of, out of rock that served as tombs for the dead. That's where he lived. He's a maniac. He's deranged. He's irrational, intensely evil, and very dangerous. Verse 3, and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one. Notice, no one can bind him anymore. Anymore, meaning his condition got progressively worse. Anymore. Used to, but not anymore. Verse 4, shackles refers to leg irons. Chains would have chained his upper body, and he breaks loose. He was thought to be a madman, out of control, a danger not only to himself but to others. So he's banished as an outcast. He's pushed out from society to dwell among those who sleep will not be disturbed 
by his shrieks, that is, the dead. Frightening display, isn't it? You know, I grew up in a neighborhood that we, you always had that misunderstood creepy neighbor that scares all the kids. We had one, and we would make up, we, our imaginations would run wild. Okay, this guy is no strange personality causing imaginations to run wild. This guy's demon-possessed. Matthew 8.28 records him to be so fierce that no one could pass by that way. So fierce, so out of control, no one bothered going down that road. He was violent. He was a risk to others. They did all they could do to restrain him, but all attempts were unsuccessful. It, it reads here, they, no one had the strength to subdue him. To subdue means to tame. It's like trying to, t- to tame a, a wild beast. No one could do it. They were totally impotent. They had no power whatsoever. So they ran him out of town. And not only was he a risk to passers-by, he was a risk to himself. Now, verse 5 completes this, this diabolical portrait of this wretched, helpless individual. Notice, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Crying out, that, that describes a nightmarish, blood-curdling scream. Imagine. A blood-curdling scream. This is the cry of ones whose soul is in absolute agony. It's terrifying. Now, Luke adds that he had not lived in a house for a long time. That he ran naked and hadn't worn clothes for a long time. And he would take flintstone-edged Flintstone-edged little rocks, and he would cut himself sharp as a knife, and he would lacerate himself. So imagine this character. Imagine this guy. He has lacerations throughout his body, scars, scabs, dried blood, infections, filthy. And again, why? Because Satan and demons who control this man, hate God and want to destroy the image of God. Now, there was also an occultic practice of lacerating yourself. You remember the um, prophets of Baal? Elijah's up there. You have all the prophets of Baal. They're crying out to all these false gods. They won't answer because they don't exist, and they start lacerating themselves. That was an an occult practice of this day. Really, the bottom line, this man detests himself. He detests himself, and out of a sense of self-loathing, he harms himself. This this is a picture of an enslaved, condemned soul at its worst. No control. This is as bad as it gets. You know what this is a taste of? Hell. Hell. A roaming, wandering, sleepless, restless, tormented lunatic. And again, it's just a small picture of hell. Because in hell, which is eternal, there's no rest, no peace, no escape, nothing good. He's trying to find relief, so he gashes himself. That's how desperate this guy is. No one's described like this in Scripture. No human being. But here, Satan unleashed all his... When Jesus came on the scene... Now this is... Look at friends. This account and demon possession like this and the other accounts that we see during Jesus' ministry is very unique to the time of the incarnation. The time that Jesus came, the powers of hell belched out, if you will, all the demonic force that there was to oppose the Son of God. And as he came in contact with them, he said, quiet, 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 be gone. Who has the power? He has the power. Only occasionally do you see this kind of thing, beloved. 
This is not the norm. This is the exception, not the rule. Demons usually operate in religious situations. They usually operate in stealth. Satan, we read, prefers to disguise himself as an angel of light. He slithers in among places called church who've swayed from sound doctrine and they preach another gospel. That's where he operates. This is not the norm. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise them as servants of righteousness. Disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. See, they masquerade behind pulpits. They masquerade amidst liberal theology. They masquerade amidst universalism. Make no mistake about it. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. You know when you read the phrase irreverent babble in the New Testament, you know what that means? False teaching. Irreverent babble. False doctrine. through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's the norm. In this case, this man is under the control of countless demonic forces. Uncontrollable, dangerous, wretched, gashing himself with jagged rocks with, in some attempt... To, to drive the evil spirits out. Tormented, night and day, no rest. Screaming out, shrieking. This blood-curdling shriek. Running around naked. Out of his mind. So there, Mark wants us to see the enslaving power of sin and Satan in one man. Here we see the extreme to which Satan will go to destroy the image of God in a person. This is the extreme. Notice now the assault. The assault against demonic domination. Here now we see the freeing power of Jesus to break chains like this. Now, remember, Jesus had already taught back in chapter 3 that no one can enter a strong man's house and carry away his possessions unless he first does what? Binds the strong man. And here, Jesus is about to rob a house. Jesus is about to rob Satan of the possession of this man's spirit and body. That's the idea. Here he is. Verse 6. And... When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Notice, he recognizes without an introduction who Jesus is. He recognizes his person, his position, and his power. Your Jesus, Son of God, do not torment me, knowing that he has the power to torment him. So the man, he's doing the talking. The man is speaking, but it's the spirits who are in him who are inciting him to speak because they're the ones that recognize Jesus. This man doesn't recognize Jesus. It's the demons inside of the man that recognize Jesus. Now, let me mention this in passing. There was an ancient practice in battle that was used as as a defense mechanism. And it was used so as to gain control over either an individual or a, a spirit. 
And the idea was to secure mastery over them. And what they would do is they would use the enemy's precise name to have some sort of power over him. And some believe, some scholars believe that by speaking forth Jesus' name here, the demon is attempting to gain control over the Lord Jesus through the use of this incantation. Okay, now we don't want to read too much into that, but nevertheless, notice, Jesus doesn't flinch. He's not rattled at all by this man. Remember, Jesus came to enter into this man's life. Jesus came to enter into this man's pain. You think this is going to rattle him? Are you kidding me? He created the demon. (laughs) And it was Jesus' idea to go here in the first place. So here you have this naked man running around screaming. The demons are screaming through his vocal cords, which reminds us, which reminds us, beloved, it is possible to recognize Jesus exactly for who he is and hate him all the more. It goes for people, too. He fell down. The, the word fell down means to worship. Okay, and th- this is not reverent admiration. Falling down here is a demonstration of submission. They have to bow down. They're forced to bow down. He's the king. He's superior. So he's driven down. The man falls down because the demons fall down. They know who Jesus is. They bow in submission to the king of kings. They don't love him. They hate him. But they must bow. And they bow. You know, demons, although they they promote heresy, they promote error, they promote liberal theology, they themselves are very orthodox. They know what is true about God the Father. They know what's true about the Christ. They know what's true about the Holy Spirit. They know what's true about salvation. But they despise the God of salvation. Therefore, they despise anyone who's a recipient of God's salvation. So they work nonstop to deceive and mislead people. The doctrine of what? Demons. And again, it's usually behind the scenes. False teaching. They call, they call out, Son of the Most High God. You know, son, Most High God occurs often in the Old Testament, and even Gentiles use it very often to, to distinguish the one true living God of Israel from all the non-existent gods of the nations. You know, the Most High God. So he rightly identifies Jesus as the unique son of the one true God. There they recognize his person, they recognize his position, and we'll soon see that they recognize his power by what they ask. Notice something interesting here. Notice, at one and the same time, he's running to Jesus with his feet, but he's running away from Jesus with his mouth. Do not! Lord Jesus, they fall down, but do not. No man yields easily to Jesus by nature. Amen? No man. That's why the scripture says no man seeks after God. It's contrary to your nature. Not until he changes your nature. Unless a man be born from above, then you become a God seeker because he's already sought you out and found you. You don't decide for Jesus and then you're born again. You're born again and then you decide for Jesus because he already decided for you. That's sovereign grace. Unique son of God, the most high God. Sinclair Ferguson says this, and I'm going to quote him three times this morning. He has this really short, concise commentary just filled with wisdom. It's unbelievable, these guys. Anyway. 
Quote, men often hold on to their bondage in evil rather than yield to the pain of transformation by Christ's power and grace, end quote. You know, we may, we, we, we may not be violently shrieking, roam, roaming among the dead, but we may be trapped in private, in chains, perhaps in front of a computer screen or some other thing, crying to Jesus for help on the one hand, whereas on the other hand, saying, I don't want to really truly be free from this. Right? Lord, help me, Lord, help me, but, you know, I really don't want to be free from this. The transformation is painful. So here he's running to, but crying out in just the opposite direction. And then he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Or as another translation puts it, swear to God that you will not torture me. The man's speaking out, the demons are speaking through his vocal cords. Matthew adds, swear to me by God that you will not torture me before the time. See, demons know their time is limited. They know that they're completely under God's authority. They recognize that right here. 4, verse 8, notice. Why? Because, for he was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And the demons know that they must leave because Jesus ordered them to leave. But the question is, where? To where do we go? So they recognize the power Jesus has. And then in verse 9, Jesus asked him, What's your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. We are many. We are so many. My name is Legion. This is speaking of of battle in in a concentrated force. A a Roman um, army battalion of of 6,000 plus, actually. 6,000 plus. That doesn't mean that there were 6,000 demons. It just means there was a lot. Legion is my name. So the spokesman of, of this legion knows they must obey and they must depart. So he makes a request. Verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, their main concern, Luke says was for him not to cast them into the abyss. And then Matthew says, before the time. In other words, you're not going to send us to the abyss, that is to hell, now are you, before the time? Again, they have an orthodox eschatology, don't they? End time view, theirs is correct. They know they're going to be doomed. So they appeal to Jesus, notice, according to the plan of God. They know the plan of God. You're not going to send us before the time, are you? Swear to Yahweh that you will not cast us into the abyss. And this serves as a warning to anyone who believes that a mere intellectual acknowledgement of God is equal to genuine saving faith. Just because you believe about God. What does James warn us? James 2. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe, and yet they what? They shudder. They tremble. They're trembling here. Verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let let us enter them. So your question is, why the pigs? Calvin says, maybe, just perhaps, it is to get the people to curse God. It's to get the people to blaspheme him, giving them at least some sense of satisfaction. Now, the fact that they suggest this is, again, a demonstration of their submission to Jesus. So Legion is asking one man, the God-man, permission to do something. And then in verse 13, so he gave them permission. 
And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Notice, Jesus prevents this demonic force from doing any more damage to this man, this poor man, and allows them to continue their rage against the created order, and in this case, against a herd of swine, and they plummet to their death. So Jesus gave permission. This tells us demons are not free to roam about, beloved. Satan himself is not free to roam about. Remember when he was roaming about the land back in the time of Job? Could he just attack Job at his free will? No, he needed permission from God. He couldn't touch Job without the permission of God. Notice. Those that were responsible for tending these pigs are not amused. Notice their response. We've already seen the demon's response. Notice their response. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told, told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they, they're afraid. These common working people, that's what they are, the common working people of this area, scurried away, and their hearts are exposed. You know, what surprised them more? 2,000 pig carcasses floating in the water? Or a demoniac sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind? Notice they're terrified of the one who had the power. So notice they exhibit fear, ignorance, and selfishness over material loss, the destruction of this herd of swine. Not compassion and joy over one delivered soul, a former demoniac. Those people are no no less slaves of sin than the demoniac. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So without a word being said, notice, about this poor demon-possessed man, the locals insist that Jesus and the disciples get out of there. Leave, depart, sorrowful over the loss of 2,000 pigs instead of rejoicing over one delivered soul. I mean, that's what this is. Now, for any pig sympathizers out there, pig mourners, you know the philosopher Bertrand Russell, he's famous for having penned an article stating this, why I'm not a Christian, pointing to this pig slaughter. Ferguson again writes this, quote, It is misplaced sentimentality to weep over the destruction of the pigs. It only shows that we do not have our priorities aligned to those of Jesus. What did Jesus say in Matthew 12, 12? Of how much more value is one man than a sheep? He who taught his disciples that they're of more value than many sparrows, here he teaches them that the deliverance of one man is worth More than 2,000 pigs. Do you believe that? What about 2,000 puppies? What if this was a group of little puppies? How would you feel then? Golden retriever puppies, the cutest that there are. Come on. Let me tell you this. There's a lot of idolatrous PETA-like people who would think that 2,000 pigs are of more value than one man's soul. Never as a Christian, beloved, buy into the freakish nonsense of our age that a cat is a dog, is a rat, is a boy. Amen? 
See, this is God's mercy on display. This man, you know what he's going to be left with? A very vivid, dramatic vision of being delivered from a legion as he watched 2,000 pigs do a swine dive into the water. That's right, swine dive. And let me get the rest of the jokes out of the way. They committed suicide, creating the first bay of pigs as they went off to hog heaven. I I said I wasn't going to go there, but I couldn't resist. Now look, you think that a man wreaking this kind of havoc demon-empowered havoc on a community of people, you think for him to be restored would be reason and cause to throw a party, to celebrate. No, they beg him to leave. Go. People who had been so frightened by this maniac are more frightened by the presence of Jesus. And such is the human heart, friends. Such is the human heart. On the one hand, the Lord of glory comes and we see the evidence of a transformed life. Okay, so on one hand, we're like, wow. And on the other hand, when you see it, you're challenged to commit your life to him. Pressure. And as a result, perhaps you'll have to give up some stuff of worldly temporal value to follow this Jesus. So you think about it for a while and you go, you know what, Jesus? Would you just leave? Just leave. I ran around with a guy for years creating havoc as a regenerate punk. Unregenerate punk is what I was. God in his grace came to me and transformed me And I sat at a table with him once I was transformed, and he was perplexed. He didn't know what to say, and I didn't know what he was all upset about. And I go, what's your problem? He goes, my question is, what's the problem with you? I go, what do you mean, what's the problem with me? He goes, why are you so different? I said, you know, I didn't even know what was going on at the time. I said, man, I've been reading the Bible for about a year, and I'm just being absolutely challenged in everything I think. He was frightened. We've never done anything since. Go away. A tragic response. Now, this delivered man's response is much different than the domestic crowd. Notice verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, Jesus The man who'd been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He's now free from demonic possession. He's in his right mind. His humanity and his dignity, my friends, have been restored by the power of God in Christ. So his response is one of deep gratitude. Lord, I want to go with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus, surprising us as he usually does, gives him a much more difficult task. Notice, go back and tell others how much the Lord's done for you. Notice there's no objection. There's no argument. There's no discussion. And you go, well, that's kind of cruel. Isn't isn't Jesus after making disciples and followers? You know what this is? This is an act of God's mercy. This is an act of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ on this community that's asking him to depart. What's he doing? He's sending back a missionary to the very people who just said, would you please go? Would you please get out of here? And this missionary is going to be able to tell these people of his own experience. Remember that guy who ran around in the tombs naked, scaring you all half to death, scaring all your children? And yeah, I just as soon would have killed you along the way anyhow. You remember me? Look at me now. It's all because of him. 
he sends him back. Testimony of a delivered demoniac. Verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's a region of 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone, what? They marveled. Having been delivered from the guilt and power of sin, as we have, what must we do? The same thing. The same thing. Fact of the matter is, beloved, each and every one of us has much more in common with this man of Gadara than we're probably willing to admit. Again, Ferguson, quote, Legion's story records in capital letters what is true of all men by nature. We're slaves to evil. We're not free. We're bent. Ultimately on self-destruction. Neither we ourselves nor others are capable of breaking the powers which have bound us. Christ alone can break the power of sin in our lives and set us free. Now, the way that he set you free, beloved, probably is not this dramatic. Amen? Before Christ, we were clothed, probably. Most likely lived in a home or or something. Car but you weren't demonized like this. You didn't express sin in the same way, but you were no less in bondage than this man. So our spiritual condition before Christ is really no different. So it was only really a matter of degree, isn't it? Compared to this this man. Because we at one time, the scripture said, also walked with our father who was the the devil. No better off spiritually. Now, if you don't believe that, you need to turn your Bible to Ephesians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all, y'all, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And then it goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ. So our condition wasn't equally as fierce as this man, amen? But it was as equally as hopeless. Equally as hopeless as this man. All slaves to sin, all bent on self-destruction, opposed to God, a clenched fist raised to God, Only he can set sinners free. Last text, Psalm 107. We read from it this morning. Verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their heads, their hearts, I'm sorry, down with hard labor, They fell down with none to help and they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them up out of darkness in the shadow of death. He burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man for he shatters, notice, he shatters the doors of bronze. He cuts into the the bars of iron. Beautiful, isn't it? You know what that tells us? There is no power Jesus cannot subdue. There are no chains that Jesus cannot break. Whether they're lifelong habits, he can break them. Patterns of sin, hatred, prejudices. He he can restore a proper relationship with your wife, your husband, your children, your parents. He can break through it all, beloved. There are no chains in your life he cannot break. There are no chains in another's life he cannot break. 
So let me ask you this. Is there someone that you've given up on? Is there someone that you've quit praying for? You think they're beyond help. And maybe it's a family member. This passage, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us many things. It also teaches us don't give up. Because Mark comes to say, here, if Jesus can rewrite this man's story, he can rewrite anyone's story. If Jesus can break the shackles of this man's life, he can break the shackles of any man's life. Right here, son of the Most High. He comes, he calls, he clothes, he cleanses, and he will raise this man imperishable. As he will you. So here's a, speaking of graves and roaming about in graves, there's a grave danger here for those who read a text like this and say, Aha! These are the kind of sinners that Jesus came to save. I'm glad I'm a good person. I'm glad I'm one of the nice people. Anyone who hides under the veneer of niceness, you are in grave danger. And you're shackled. You're in bondage. You're not unlike these garrisons right here. Who beg Jesus to depart. You know what? You tell him to leave you alone enough, the danger is, he may leave you alone. It'll be too late. And the next words you'll hear from him are, depart from me. I never knew you. For on that day you will stand naked, not unlike this man, before the living God. Meaning that you do not have the righteousness required to stand before him clothed. You need a righteousness that comes outside of yourself. And that righteousness is found in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ alone. Unless you're cloaked in his robes, robes, you'll stand naked and judged. Does that sound terrifying? You should be terrified if that's you. And I hope you leave terrified because that leads to eternal hell. Yeah, eternal hell. Torment. And the hope is that you'll call upon the only one who can free you. This Jesus who alone would take upon himself the wrath of hell on a Roman cross. So as we study the end of Mark's gospel, what do we see? Okay, don't miss this. As we study to the end of the gospel, we see that like legion, Jesus is naked and shouting and screaming with blood-curdling screams naked from the cross. Like legion, abandoned and alone. His disciples will abandon him. His father will forsake him. And hell will descend upon him as he hangs on the cross. Like legion, he gets cut open and bleeds. And like legion, Jesus is set out. He's sent out amongst the tombs. Right? The only way to reverse the effects of sin... The only way to reverse the effects of evil and, and death and to make you fully human again is to entrust yourself to the one who bore the shame and receive his righteousness. The one who stood condemned by faith and trust alone. And you'll be delivered. Not unlike legion. Your humanity and dignity will be fully restored in Christ. And one day you'll receive a glorified body. You'll be raised imperishable just like this man will be because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So through the death, resurrection of our Lord, he's the one who's Lord over the wind, over the rain, over demonic forces of hell and of Satan and even over death itself. 
He's the only one who can set you free and restore what was lost in the first Adam, and that is the image of God. Be thankful, beloved. And don't see yourself any less of a sinner than this wretched description. And rejoice in the finished work of Christ. And if you think you're one of those good people, think again. You're the most deceived that there are. Repent. And believe. And you'll be delivered.